This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Azra Raza, clinician and researcher at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. Dr. Raza will tell us about why she specializes in MDS, or myeloid dysplastic syndrome, and AML, acute myeloid leukemia, two devastating cancers of the blood. What we know about why patients get MDS and AML, and why some progress to the more aggressive forms of the disease. Why we know so little about so many forms of cancer, despite many decades of research. About her own efforts to find the so-called first cell, which would allow us to catch and potentially treat cancer at a much earlier stage. And how her newly emerging startup company will go about trying to find treatments for these and other deadly diseases. She'll also tell us about how her love of studying ants in Pakistan led her down the path to her medical career, and what advice she's given her own daughter and other students looking to pursue a career in science. Dr. Raza, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. As a clinician, you're famous for your work as a cancer doctor at Columbia, focusing on myelodysplastic syndrome, MDS, and acute myeloid leukemia, or AML. But not all of our listeners will know what these two illnesses are. So if you could perhaps Start off by laying the groundwork on explaining what kinds of cancer MDS and AML are. Thank you for having me, Oren. It's a pleasure. Uh, Acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, which is the disease that I started my career studying and continue to do so some four decades later, is a cancer of uh, the bone marrow. And the bone marrow is responsible for making blood. The kind of blood cells it makes are broadly divided into lymphoid and myeloid. Myeloid uh, cells are the red cells, the white cells, and the platelets. So in other words, acute myeloid leukemia is a cancer of stem cells in the bone marrow that are responsible for making these three types of blood cells. Got it. And what is myelodysplastic syndrome and how does it relate to AML? MDS is also a bone marrow stem cell disease in which the red cells, white cells or platelets are once again affected because it's a stem cell disease. But curiously enough, a third of these patients can progress to acute myeloid leukemia, while two thirds of the patients will continue to have this variable blood uh, count lowering and eventually they can succumb to the MDS itself, but a third of them will develop acute myeloid leukemia. And why is that? Is the mechanism for why that happens understood? Not very well at all. So how is that possible after, uh, you know, I, I, my listeners know I'm not a clinician, I'm not a researcher, but why um, has, is it, why is it that we don't yet understand the, how, how one disease progresses into a different disease and why that happens and when? I think my simple answer is going to be because we have relied on mouse models and they do not uh, uh, faithfully reflect what is happening in the human. Because, for example, we try to study this phenomenon of why pre-leukemia becomes acute leukemia by taking cells from a pre-leukemia patient and putting them in a mouse. The mouse never gets these diseases by itself. So we are actually artificially creating these diseases and then trying to study how it's progressing. And that hasn't helped. Mm. So when you're looking, when you're talking to a patient who has MDS, um, and I'm guessing some of our listeners have either themselves or have family members who've been affected, they, they, they themselves have no, like, there's no way of, of telling the likelihood that their individual case will progress into AML. We have some clues about uh, patients who are going to progress rapidly versus those we can relax about, but we overestimate hugely the lower risk patients, meaning patients we think have a lower risk of progression um, and sit back complacently will suddenly come back with acute myeloid leukemia. So while we can't uh, most accurately prognosticate in most of the patients, uh, in many patients, I think we can give some idea. Hmm. 
And you mentioned, uh, so for, for the audience, Dr. Russ has written a, a fantastic book called The First Cell, uh, which you can uh, get widely available in bookstores or online. Um, and you, you talk in the book about these diseases being particularly challenging to treat as opposed to many more tractable cancers. Um, why, why is it so complicated? Why is this type of cancer so much more complicated? It's such a good question, Oren. Well, I think the most obvious answer is that at diagnosis, these diseases are all, are all over the place because blood goes to every part of the body. So in, by definition, at diagnosis, they're already too far advanced to be controlled by easy means. And that's very different than, for example, a solid tumor, which you can, if there is a cancer of, uh, say, the lungs or the skin, you notice a small growth, whether it's on imaging devices or feeling something, a nodule somewhere, uh, which many times is just localized and can be treated very successfully by surgery or radiation therapy. But these diseases are in the blood and they're all over. So so there's, that's the reason, I think. Uh, I see. And does that imply that there's, like, are, are these detected typically... Is the diagnosis for MDS and AML done with a simple blood test? It, it doesn't require a biopsy in the, in the way that a solid tumor does? It always requires a biopsy. From the blood, we can just tell that something is wrong and we are suspicious. But then we have to confirm what exactly is happening in the bone marrow. Is it pre-leukemia? Is it acute leukemia? Is it something else entirely? absolutely necessary to do a bone marrow biopsy in every case for diagnosis. And how did you get interested? I, maybe we can, now that we've covered what the disease is at heart, maybe we can take a step back. How did you get interested in oncology, in, in cancer in the first place? And in particular within oncology, how did you find your way to these two particular diseases? I guess that's going to take me back to um, a much earlier stage in my life. You know, Oren, I grew up in Karachi, Pakistan. And somehow right from the beginning, I was very interested and curious about natural phenomena around me. Like I remember following ants around as a little girl. And I got so interested in ants, I started reading about them as soon as I could. And by the time I came to America, I was ready to be a myrmecologist because I was so into <laughs> the study of ants. But in, and, and had I grown up in this country, I'm sure that I would have become a field biologist. Hmm. But I was growing up in Pakistan, remember, and the only entry into science was through joining medical school. So that's what I did. And uh, before going to med school, though, I must say that my attention had been um, gripped by the cell itself and then reading about the kind of staggeringly abnormal behavior cancer cells manifest. So I became very interested in oncology in terms of reading about cancer. Uh, by the time I joined medical school, I was intellectually fascinated by the fact that, number one, here is a cell in our body which literally starts behaving like a new organism. It, and uh, this new organism has somehow found the secret to immortality because it can live forever. And so I thought to myself, if I can unlock the secret of the cancer cell, I could unlock the secret of aging. This is how I thought as a young person. And mm. secondly, the thing I found shocking was that uh, Virchow said that the body is like a state and cells are its citizens and citizens must follow rules. And one of the rules is that the citizens stay in the organ in which they are born. Liver cells stay in the liver, ovarian cells stay in the ovaries. Only in one disease do they walk out of the organ, and that is cancer, where 
liver cells are landing up in the bone marrow ovarian cells are landing up with metastases in the brain so these two things fascinated me how do cells become mobile when they become cancerous and how do they live forever so i started uh, my medical school with these things in mind that i'm going to uh, to really go to america and do my phd in molecular biology but first i have to do this medical school because the only way i can uh, pursue science education but then or in something really uh, uh, defining happened to me which is i came across in third year of med school my first patient with cancer and that was had such a dramatic emotional impact on me because you see in pakistan cancer patients don't uh, present early almost uh, the majority of them at that time would arrive with very advanced stages of the disease something which i have never seen since i came to america there would be these appalling hideous monstrosities sticking out of very thin wasted bodies because these are mostly older patients who would have traveled long distances from villages and suburbs to come to the city to be seen in government hospitals and i felt so moved by their suffering and anguish that i knew that the intellectual stimulation pales in front of my emotional investment from now on in trying to reduce the suffering of these individuals and this is the dual emotional and intellectual challenge that seized my imagination when i was in my 20s and has continued to increase with time if anything one of the things that struck me in reading your book um and also by reputation i think as i've i've mentioned in full disclosure um my my wife knows you and our families are 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 have have many points of interaction but um and but also by reputation from patients you treated is that you invest a tremendous amount of your time um and i think emotional energy and in some ways you know love in your patients and uh that is not something that the american healthcare system is is famous for I mean, it seems to me that that there's there's it, it, there's a the trade-off that you talk about that on one hand in in the wealthier countries um patients are seen early enough in their disease that you don't have that advanced state of 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 degradation by the time you see them but at the same time it that's possible because there's the the healthcare system is often sort of runs like a machine and runs very efficiently and that means that it's hard for clinicians to invest that kind of time so i'm i'm uh, it sounds like you've made really deep connections to many of your patients how have you managed to find that balance and that trade off oren this whole thing started really out of my own anxieties and insecurities actually because think of me i came to this country as a 24 year old fresh graduate from med school i was so anxious to cure cancer i started working in a cancer center even before i did my residency within a few weeks of my arrival in the us i started seeing cancer patients now everything was new to me although i have to admit that i was raised in a hybrid east west kind of culture you know thanks to british colonization i went to english schools i could speak the language well i had was very familiar with the classic literature uh, but still you come to america and it's a, it was a cultural shock in many ways and i suffered from perpetual anxieties about how to make sense of the chaotic the fragmented informations that patients gave especially think of it that the same events described by the patients and then by the family members keep evolving they develop new lives as they travel literally from mouth to mouth or from week to month or from symptom to sign i kept would keep thinking what did i miss what did i not hear what did they forget to report 
how to separate the noise from the real thing, the wheat from the chaff. In fact, how to listen more hearingly, the kind of listening that the blind develop naturally. Listen for what is not being said. And so, only way I could do all this was spend more time with patients after hours. At that time, part of my rotation happened to be at the VA hospital in Buffalo and that was very close to where I was living. So I would come home after a full day of work, have dinner and then go back to the VA and sit with my patients for hours, keeping them up at night, late at night, <laughs> because it's the only way or in that I could, uh, I could really understand some of the soul-destroying challenges uh, these people were facing people who were running out of time how they were cataloging their swelling regrets their vanishing options facing the maelstrom of disease and disorder around them i was so anxious to know how to develop the self-control and equanimity and be able to follow uh, the advice of someone like uh, I quote in the book, Emery Austin, some days there won't be song in your heart, sing anyway. In short, narration, a narrative medicine became a central theme for me because lives depend upon what is said and what is heard. But that requires a lot of time. You know, doctors are known to interrupt patients every 18 seconds. But something that, as you know from perhaps uh, reading the book, that I'm very much into poetry and especially Emily Dickinson amongst the Western poets. She said something so beautiful. Surgeons must be very careful when they take the knife. Surgeons must be very careful when they take the knife underneath their fine incisions stirs the culprit life. Mm. And what I understood from this uh, short stanza of hers is that it is life itself that is the culprit in the sense that surgeons are trying to take off a wart, some kind of a disease. But then Underneath is the most beautiful thing, life. In other words, life must be accepted, warts and all, along with its imperfections. And thus I learned to deal with disease. That underneath the disease is the patient, the beautiful life of the patient. And so while you, your comment about the American system not having... Uh, giving its doctors enough time is absolutely true. I grew up in an American system uh, where I did have some more luxury of time uh, simply because of my situation as an immigrant. I was doing all of this before I started my residency and then it became a habit of mine to spend more and more time out of my anxiety, of course, to understand uh, what the patient really is all about. And it became a lifelong habit for me. But I do agree completely that today the American uh, medical system, which is run on the basis of, uh, of uh, monetizing everything, requires doctors to see, to spend little time with the patients. Most of our time is spent on trying to document things and save ourselves from whatever imagined legal challenges there are. And that's a disservice to the patient most of all. It's, it's interesting that, that, coming back to what you said earlier, you mentioned that uh, you actually initially got interested in studying cancer it, because, not because initially, it, because of the lethality of the cancer, but in fact because of the immortality of the cancer itself. That the, it, at the cellular level, cancer is a huge success story um, in some ways. It, it's, you know, amazing at staying alive. And that's something I think many of us, you know, humans aspire to. And frankly, the ants that you used to look at aspired to. 
um, you know, c- keeping uh, d- just that longevity. Um, have you, uh, it, it, but unfortunately, you know, obviously cancer doesn't work that way in the human body. Um, and it seems that investing the amount of time and attention you do in, in your patients, um, given the outcomes from AML, um, must itself take a huge emotional toll. An enormous emotional toll. Because think of it, I started in 1977 as a just fresh medical graduate, treating patients with acute myeloid leukemia with these two drugs that we popularly called seven and three because it's seven days of one and three days of another. And today in 2022, I'm still using the same two drugs. The first line treatment for acute myeloid leukemia remains seven and three after all these years. So yes, having the same conversation over and over with thousands of patients, the only reason I'm alive and can continue my work is because of my constant quest to do something better. So maybe let's dig into that a little bit. Uh, you talk in the book, uh, you, this is a subject you talk a lot about in the book, about um, that the traditional approaches to treating cancer are helpful to many people, but that going after the cancer once it's already become established in the blood or in solid tumors is challenging and that we don't always have the best weapons to, to do that. And so, you know, hence, unfortunately, it, it not surprisingly often delivers temporarily, temporary and partial relief at, at best. And so you've, this has led sort of down your quest to go after the, the so-called the first cell or the first cancer cell to get there as early as possible. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that's so important and, and how you've gone about trying to find that first cell? It is my entire life story, actually, uh, because once I realized within a few years of studying and treating patients with acute myeloid leukemia, that in my lifetime, no cure will be found for this disease. It is so deadly, it is so vicious, so malevolent a disease. And upon realizing that, I asked myself, well, how are we curing any cancers? And what I saw was that the only good news we could give a cancer patient after we give them the bad diagnosis that you have cancer is that, oh, we found it early, so that's good news, we can take care of it. And so it was a logical conclusion for me that the best way to cure cancer is to find it early. But how do you find an acute leukemia early? You can find a solid tumor early because you could detect a mass. But leukemia only manifests itself when it's full-blown. And so to me, the only way to find acute myeloid leukemia early would be to look for individuals who are at high risk of getting acute leukemia. I asked myself back in 1980s, when I was in my early 30s, what is the possibility of finding high-risk individuals. And those turned out to be patients who we called, we didn't even call them by myelodysplastic syndromes for the longest time. They were like patients presenting with pre-leukemia because some of them would develop leukemia. So these would be individuals who would just show up in clinic because they felt weak and when the blood count was done, they were found to be anemic or they had low white count and they would present with an infection. And so these are patients with lowered blood counts, red cells, white cells or platelets. And then we would do a marrow and say, oh, this is pre-leukemia, but this pre-leukemic patient has a higher chance of developing leukemia because there are more immature Uh, cells or blasts in the bone marrow. And so that's how I turned my attention to say, oh, then we should be studying people with high risk. And of course, then, as has always been the case with me, Orin, I had an experience which was soul shattering for me with a patient who I talk extensively about in my book, who I call JC. And Mm. JC was pretty much my age. I was 32, she was 34. She gave a story that uh, 
when she was um, pregnant, like three years before, she had become, she developed this fetish for smelling gasoline during her pregnancy. So, can you imagine mm. every day of her That's pregnancy, <laughs> she would walk to the corner gas station, she would buy a dime's worth of gasoline and sniff it all day. Hmm. Nine months later, she developed a set of perfectly healthy twin girls. But then, um, six months later, her counts dropped and she had myelodysplastic syndrome. And that rapidly evolved to acute leukemia. So by the time she came to see me, she already had acute leukemia. And then I started treating her. And over the next year and a half, two years that she lived, we became very good friends because she initially responded. Then she was well, she would come to see me. And then she relapsed, of course, as was the case with everyone in those days and still is, and died. And that completely changed me. I was so shattered by her death because, you see, when her last days came, Oren, she asked to be admitted to the hospital for her final illness. And I did. And every day I would go to see her and I would see her writing something. And one day I got up enough courage to ask her, Jackie, what are you writing? And the response she gave, my God, she said, uh, Dr. Raza, I'm writing letters that I want my daughters to open on each of their birthdays. Mm. And she said, I've reached their 12th birthday. Keep me alive till I reach their 21st. And I couldn't. And that's the kind of anguish and suffering. Imagine a 34-year-old dying with two-and-a-half-year-old twin girls. Um, and I came home, I remember, and I said to my husband, listen, I've made a mistake. I should be studying. I should have treated JC when she had pre-leukemia. I should have intercepted her disease right then and there before it evolved into that end-stage monstrosity that we can't control. And so I started to focus after JC's death uh, as a commitment, as a tribute to her memory to really start um, finding patients who are at high risk of leukemia and following them throughout to see if I can study that transition point properly and understand it. That's how it really, my quest for uh, early detection started. And early detection then I realized very quickly over the years as I studied, not very quickly, but I realized that even myelodysplastic syndrome or pre-leukemia is a cancer by itself, because the first cell has already been born and gone awry. So that forced me to say, okay, then if acute leukemia is too late, I tried to go to pre-leukemia, but now I'm finding pre-leukemia itself is already late. So what do I have to do to find this thing early? Then I realized I have to go to the first cell. The very initiation, the birth of cancer, it, catching it in its nascent stage. That means people at risk of MDS even, or people with solid tumors who are at risk of getting solid tumors. And that's how my obsession changed from a declared cancer to people at risk of cancer to finding the first cell. And that's what I've stuck with all my life. And Oren, nobody can blame me for, can ever incriminate me for one thing, which is inconsistency. I've been very consistent <laughs> for decades in my life. Yeah, and actually, let's dig into that, because I, I find that fascinating. I mean, a lot of, you know, clearly every oncologist, presumably, and every cancer researcher would be would be would say, of course, the earlier we find this, the better. And of course, if we can find the first cell, that would be amazing. But you have a tool in your arsenal to do that that I think many people don't, and part of it relates to that consistency, which is your tissue repository. Um, and, and so, again, many of our listeners may not know what that is. So can you explain, explain what a tissue repository is yeah. and why that's useful in cancer research? Mm -hmm. 
before I do that, let me tell you one thing. My daughter, Shahrazad, went to Columbia University for undergrad studies. And like, in, and she was doing pre-med. And one day in her uh, junior year, she came home and suddenly said to me, started crying, Mommy, what would happen if I don't find my MDS? <laughs> so, <laughs> she was so anxious that she's not finding enough passion for any of the things she was studying then. And so I said to her, it's okay, don't worry, just let life happen to you. And this is why the reason I was able to give her this advice was because most of the things I have done in my career happened to me as a part of my experiences going through life because as an immigrant, one thing that really helped me was I could think out of the box by definition because I was not brought up within the system. So when I turned my attention to studying uh, pre-leukemia MDS patients very seriously, I said to myself, well, if I'm going to study them, I need their tissue. So I started just whatever blood I drew, bone marrow I drew, would take extra and bank it in my freezers. And in the early days, it was very easy to get permission from the institution to do this kind of thing. We didn't have the elaborate uh, structure that has developed now, which is very good. Don't, don't think I'm criticizing it, but I'm saying maybe it was easier to do it. So this is what I started to do in 1984, started saving samples of blood and saliva and bone marrow aspirates and biopsies in in my freezers and this became a tissue repository. Now the beautiful part about this is that everybody else around me was studying mice and had I gone to school in this country I would have done the same that when I turned my attention to study MDS I would have tried to develop a mouse model of MDS but because I was an outsider I started banking tissue and not just at one time point, but as the disease progressed during its natural history in a patient, I would take longitudinal samples. So started in 1984, this tissue repository has now grown to 60,000 samples from thousands of patients longitudinally obtained. Not one cell is, is coming from another oncologist. In other words, every while in these freezers has a poignant story for me because I've taken mm. care of the patients myself. Not only that, to this day, Oren, I work like an intern. I draw the, the research <laughs> bloods, all of them myself. I do every marrow with my own hands. Yesterday was my clinic day. I was there till 8 o'clock. How many marrows did I do? How many bloods did I draw for the tissue repository? And so, the ability to have this sample collection, which now, and of course I've been studying these uh, tissues all along and have published hundreds of papers with original observations in the highest profile journals, New England Journal and Science and Nature and Cancer Research, whatever. But do I need another paper in Nature? Do I need another grant? No, now the time has come that I have all these tissues and the technology has arrived, we need to examine this amazing collection seriously, not just with any one technology like genomics or, uh, or proteomics, but every, multi-omics, everything together, genomics, proteomics, transcriptomics, metabolomics, glycomics, everything on serial samples and trace it back to the very start of the disease and then ask the question, how did this start? Uh, but then, as I said, even pre-leukemia is not enough. So I wanted to go before earlier than that. So can I say just one more thing? I know this answer has become too long. No, over. that's okay. Please, it's okay. Yeah, this <laughs> But is I wanted to say that the quest for the first cell for me then took me to a different angle where I said, why, first of all, 
why should I be the only one saying all this? Consensus is very important, especially in science, because art is I. A Van Gogh can stand and paint a starry night by himself, but science is we. It's a collective effort. Uh, you need a community of scientists. So what I did is as soon as we went into the lockdown and, and Zoom was introduced to us because of the COVID uh, crisis, I started calling up my colleagues at uh, the finest institutions in this country, like MD Anderson, Dana-Farber, Johns Hopkins, University of Chicago, Northwestern University. And I said to my colleagues there, listen, you know, I would tell them my hypothesis about the first cell and say, point out the fatal flaw in my argument that looking for the first cell is not important. And if you don't, then join the revolution. And do you know, Oren, that not one single person said no to me. They all joined. Mm. So I created this oncology think tank, which has eight major institutions are participating, leaders from academia. But then I added uh, leaders from industry uh, to it, like re like people interested in industry, interested in early detection, like Regeneron, like Grail, like Illumina. I, I added leaders from these. And we had 17 two-hour-long meetings. And can you imagine everyone agreed that we need to find cancer earlier than stage one. We need to find it at the first cell level. And we published an opinion paper with I'm the lead author with 30 co-authors uh, from all these institutions and uh, industry. And we published it last year in Scientific American. The, con the consensus great. was find the first cell. But then the question came up, how do you find the first cell? And that is where I started the first cell coalition for um, cancer survivors because cancer survivors are individuals who have had one cancer who keep coming to cancer centers for follow-up. So they, and is that is that funded? Is that like traditional NIH funding for something like that? Like where, where does an effort like that get funding from? Well, the effort was that, look, uh, I said, to, to this oncology think tank leaders, I said to them that if we are going to find, look for the first cell, we have to find individuals who are at risk of getting, say, prostate cancer, at risk of getting breast cancer, any of the solid tumors. There are many groups like that. There are people born with genetic susceptibility like BRCA, you know, the gene one or two mutations, etc. But I honed in on the cancer survivors because they are hooked up to institutions. As an, in, I mean, maybe in your audience listening to this, there are individuals who've had cancer or they know someone who has had cancer and they may get anxious hearing that cancer survivors are at risk of getting another cancer. So let me say this, an individual who has survived cancer, their chance of getting another cancer is only 13% higher than that, that of a normal person. However, when you look at people who are actually diagnosed with cancer, then 20% of them, one in five new cancers occur in a cancer survivor. That's huge. So I went to NIH and I talked to Dr. Doug Louie, who is the head of the um, director of uh, National Cancer Institute. And I have to say, Dr. Louie is fantastic, Orin. He's mm. a scientist himself. He's a, and he thoroughly agreed with me. We had multiple meetings and he said, it's a, what you're doing is amazing, Azra. It's a great idea. He met with our whole group. And he said, it's fantastic. But we think uh, as the NCI leadership, he went and consulted his uh, uh, committee, came back and told us that we love the idea. We think we should go ahead, but please apply for this and this grant. And I felt that applying to NIH grants and going that route, while it's a good way to do it, I felt I could do it faster by raising funds from another resource. And so NIH hasn't funded this, but I, re I have received funding for the entire project, which is like $22 million uh, from other partners who are willing to support the formation of a 
tissue repository of cancer survival. So at the moment at Columbia University, every single day, Oren, I am obtaining six types of samples, blood, saliva, urine, feces, hair and nails on up to 10 cancer survivors every day and banking these samples. In a couple of years, we will have enough samples out of which few hundred, if not a thousand or two thousand individuals would have developed a second cancer. Now I have this tissue repository which contains samples from solid tumor patients before they had the cancer. So in looking at these tissue samples, have you, my understanding is you actually have a hypothesis, not only about how to find those first cells, but also about maybe about why that first cell goes from a normal cell to becoming this immortal cancer, cancer cell. And is that something you can talk about? I would love to talk about that because I think that is the way right now um, to curing cancer in the near future. Um, Again, this happened to me by serendipity, Oren. In my lab, we were trying to CRISPR in a mutation in a gene um, called SF3B1, splicing factor 3 beta 1. This is a gene that is mutated at this hot spot in 95% individuals who present with a certain type of MDS called um, myelodysplastic syndromes with ring sideroblasts. So I took human leukemia cells and they are grown in a tissue culture cell line and I was trying to create CRISPR, this mutation, to study its effects. But when we did that, Oren, what I saw was that the cells, we had uh, uh, CRISPR'd the mutation in, that those cells suddenly showed very large sizes. They became like giant cells, like five times the size of the normal wild-type leukemia cell that was growing in the dish. Here were cells that we were shockingly large in size. So I became interested in what these giant cells are. And when I started to read the literature, it turns out that I found several investigators who were actively studying giant cells. And this included Ken Pienta from Johns Hopkins, Jin Song Lu from MD Anderson. I call him the father of giant cells. And basically what all of us were finding was that when we stress cells, some of them become giant in size. So what is happening? This is how I I developed my hypothesis about how cancer begins. And the new model of cancer that I'm proposing is based on these observations by many of us. And it turns out that giant cells have been described since 1856, originally by Virchow, who drew these giant cells that you see large cells, even in primary tumor sections, you will see them, but they're so rare that we generally ignore them and say, oh, this is a dying cell or this is a reticuloendothelial cell. Nobody has bothered to follow them up. But basically what I'm saying is that cancer doesn't arise out of nowhere. There's some stress in the body not mental stress or psychological stress, but a stress like, let's say, the liver gets an infection by a virus, hepatitis B virus. The virus starts killing lots of liver cells, which are stressed now, and they're getting the signal, fight or flight, either you develop a strategy to survive or you're going to die. And one of the strategies that cells develop to survive is they fuse together. Because that doubles their genome, the number of genes are doubled suddenly and they can do many more things together. And this fusion creates a large cell. And occasionally this kind of fusion and re-engineering of the genome results in a malignant phenotype. 
and now this becomes the first cancer cell. So what I am saying is the first cell is not one cell, but it's two cells. It's a tissue mm. cell that's combined with a blood cell. And these two together now will become a giant cell which in which the nucleus keeps dividing, but the cell doesn't divide. So it becomes polyploidal or it has many nuclei. So now you have a giant cell with multiple nuclei. And once the stress is reduced, depolyploidization occurs, which means that the multiple nuclei, each of them will pinch a bit of cytoplasm and literally be born out of the giant cell by a process called neosis, not mitosis, but neosis, like a spore formation, like a fungus uh, sets, uh, throws out these spores. Just like that, the giant cell will let out these stream of small cells that are actually the cancer cells. And when mm. we come in with treatments, we end up killing the small cells, but the mother cell has remained behind. So what I'm saying is that we need to develop the understanding and characterization of this mother cell, the first cell, the giant cell. And until we develop the technology to take out the giant cell, recurrence of cancer will keep happening after we treat the small cells. This is my new model. And I think that we have the ability to catch this first cell, the giant cell in cancer survivors tissue repository because we need to have enough of them to study, to characterize them, to understand their biology and develop targeting mechanisms to take them out. Well, because money is really a tool to achieve the outcome, not the yes. goal itself. The real yeah, quest is the cure of cancer. I'm not interested in prolonging survival by two months. So don't talk to me about treatment like that. Right. You know, you can hear the passion for this in your voice, and it's obviously, if you've read, if anyone who's read the book, you can, it comes through in every page, but you can also hear it just in the way you describe your life's work. And, and I can, so I, if I, my last question, I'll, I'll come back to your daughter, Shahrazad's comment uh, to you about finding, finding her, M, her MDS and finding her passion. Um, do you think back you know, everyone at some point in their career starts to think about their retirement and what they're going to do with the rest of their lives um, or what they might have done with their lives if it had gone differently. Do you ever think back to, you know, your interest in ants or, or, your, or your initial interest in, in you know, in understanding uh, those kinds of questions? You know, what else you might have done or what else beyond the pursuit of, uh, of cancer that you might, that, that you might want to pursue with, with the rest of your life? <laughs> I mean, it's impossible for me to imagine because I have a curious mind and my curiosity changed to wonder. And curiosity is, you know, when you're asking questions, inquiry. But wonder is when everything you knew gets turned on its head. And so the two things that uh, create real wonder in me is one, scientific discoveries, the joy of uh, suddenly finding and seeing a solution. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, just as deeply as I'm moved by science, I'm moved by poetry. Uh, why? Because that also raises a sense of wonder. The, the uh, sudden, um, within 25 words or less, you uh, are forced to uh, acknowledge a profound truth. In fact, I say that the two uh, strands of a DNA are like the two lines in a couplet uh, in Urdu, in my language. They contain these microcosms, convey and contain macrocosms uh, of universes to you. So had I not gone into science, the only other thing I can imagine having done would be something in poetry and literature. And as you know, my first book, in fact, is, uh, is uh, on poetry, The Epistemologies of Elegance written with my co-author, Sara Suleri Goodyear. So hmm. I think I would have done something in literature. From the point of view of a student, an undergraduate, a master's student, a medical student, what advice would you give them? I know you mentioned earlier about the, your story about Shahrazad and, you know, let life happen. But what advice would you give them about, uh, about your, your clinical work and, and your interactions with your patients? When she was little, Oren, I joined uh, something called the mother and daughter uh, club and 
the idea was that mothers would take their young daughters to meet with role models and so the club would invite uh, women who are amazing achievers accomplished women and one of them happened to be maya angelou and shahrzad asked her a question at that time and she said miss uh, angelou if you had any advice to give me what would it be and there was something so beautiful that uh, perhaps we should uh, i should end with that that in my work that has been the operating guiding principle always but maya angelou said it so beautifully she said shahrzad just remember this people will forget what you say to them people will even forget what you do to them but they will never forget how you made them feel and i think that how you make people feel is such an important thing when you are sitting across a patient in your examination room a patient must never leave that room feeling uncomfortable and i think this is something that i want to convey to all the young doctors in training as well to, as to all my colleagues that we have to do more for cancer patients today and think of cancer patients tomorrow and 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 always remember how we are making them feel dr raza thank you so much for joining us today i really appreciate it thank you so much oren for this opportunity for me to be able to speak to your a wonderful audience it has been a pleasure